Inclusion Inc. Diversity at Work is a podcast about exploring the hard topics and questions within the conversation about diversity and inclusion. Throughout this series, I sit down with business leaders and influencers from startups to Fortune 500 companies to dive deeper into the exciting but sometimes uncomfortable conversations and changes happening within the workplace. Tune in to some real conversation with real people about real issues. This is Inclusion Inc. Diversity at Work. In 1960, there weren't a lot of places that were welcoming to the LGBTQ community, which is why the Stonewall Inn in Manhattan, New York was such a unique place. There, people could almost escape and be themselves. There was no dress code and people of a severely marginalized community could not only find solace, but also community. During this time, US history was full of change. The air was thick with the cries of the civil rights movement heavy with the anti-Vietnam War protests, and soon palpable with the gay liberation movement. On June 28, 1969, at 1.20 in the morning, the Stonewall Inn was raided by the NYPD. The double doors of the inn swung open, rattling on their iron hinges, and the commanding officer shouted, Police, we are taking the place. Over 200 people stood there, confused and dazed by the overhead lights and the police shouting. Then the police barred the doors. From there, everything went south. Instead of following procedure, the police broke from regulation and began trying to take everyone into custody. There was gruffly manhandling, inappropriate frisking, and assaulting of some of the lesbian patrons. Some officers began shoving and grabbing at some of the trans members, and others began seizing some of the liquor. As this continued, the crowd and officers became more riled up. In contrast, the crowd inside and outside of the Stonewall Inn began to grow. As the police went for their first arrests, the crowd began cajoling and pestering the police, booing their corrupt and aggressive actions. Author Edmund White, who had been passing by, later recalled, everyone's restless, angry, and high-spirited. No one has a slogan, no one even has an attitude, but something is brewing. Then it happened. Someone shouted, gay power, followed by an officer smacking a lesbian woman over the head with a baton after she began struggling by roughly being coerced into a police cruiser. She was complaining her cuffs were too tight. At the sight of such an abuse of power, the crowd then erupted into a riot. We started Project Rainbow in 2018 as a fundraiser initially for the Pride Center, the Utah Pride Center. Um, And here in Utah, it's a big tradition for the Boy Scouts to stake American flags for various U.S. holidays. And I thought it might be a fun thing to gay it up a little bit and do it with rainbow flags for Pride Week. So we started with about 500 flags around the Wasatch Front um, the first year and This past year for Pride Week, we did about 3,000 rainbow flags, so it's grown quite a bit each year. We started as a fundraiser, and to date we've raised over $100,000, which has been amazing, but I think that the real impact um, is to see these flags go up for Pride Week, because, you know, especially in, like, neighborhoods like Sugar House um, or the avenues, you drive around and you see, like, at least one flag, if not a dozen flags on every street, you know, and so it makes the city feel so united, kind of, like, 
it feels like everyone's celebrating Pride Week together. Um, but even I think more impactful or at least more profoundly impactful than, you know, those flags in Sugar House and other parts of Salt Lake are these flags we stake in like little, little, little rural towns like Veo or Tooele or Camas. Or, I mean, like, these towns have, like, populations of, like, 500 people, some of them. And they're getting at least one rainbow flag, if not, you know, a handful around town. And it was, like, personally impactful for me because I think as a gay man, I never would have felt safe in any of those towns. You know, like, going on a road trip and stopping in a town like that, I'd, like hop out, use the restroom in the gas station, and jump back in my car because I'm like, I hope no one sees my, you know, equality sticker or something. And, you know, but then it, like, if I were to drive to the town and see this giant rainbow flag, like sticking in someone's front yard, I'd be like, oh my God, there really are like queer people and allies to queer people in every corner of the state. So those rural flags, even though there's a lot less of them, I think have been like, the coolest impact that this project has had. I tell everyone who signs up for a flag, you know, like your flag's gonna have an impact on people and you probably won't hear that impact. But then a lot of people end up getting letters and they, you know, send pictures of the letters back to us of these people who say, oh, like, I didn't think there was anyone else queer in this whole town. And then you put up a flag and, or they say like these people came and knocked on their door and they're like, oh my gosh, like, thank you so much. Like, and they've become like, people have like become friends with other people because of these flags. Like it's really like kind of built community in places where it didn't exist before, you know, like in these suburban or rural areas, it's kind of hard, especially if you're queer to like make friends. But as if you, there's that rainbow flag, at least it's like a starting point, you know, it's at least shows you it's a like-minded person. So, you know, we've heard a lot of people who just um, make friends through it. Like I said, there's also kids who will, um, like two or three letters have popped up that, from kids that say, you know, I'm gay, my parents don't know, but thank you for putting this flag up. Um, another, I t was talking to this woman she didn't even know I had anything to do with Project Rainbow, but she had just moved here with her wife. And I was like, oh, how do you like Salt Lake? And she's like, you know, we were really nervous because we thought like, you know, people would like be weird about us being gay. And then um, the week after we moved in, I guess it was Pride Week and our whole street put up rainbow flags. And I guess it was some like organization that does it, but it was just so cool and such a surprise. and. She just happened to move here the week before Pride, so, um, so that was kind of you know a cool like hearing from her. But yeah, yeah, it, it has been kind of cool hearing the impact it has on people. And like I said, like we never really will know like all the impacts it has. So I just want to get started, kick things off with a little personal background. Tell me where you're from, what you're up to, and why you are who you are today. Um, yes, it is strange that a South African 
guy from a tiny town at the bottom of Africa is the executive director of the Utah Pride Center. But, <laughs> you know, there it is. Stranger things have happened. Yes. Um, so my background is I grew up in South Africa, uh, lived there for many, many years, was a teacher in South Africa and in the South African school systems. Um, one of the things that I... Um, was able to see and experience and live through in South Africa was the change of the Rainbow Revolution mm. where we moved from the apartheid South Africa into one that was finally free and fair and we had a, um, the election of uh, Nelson Mandela, the writing of a new constitution. So I think that that is important context as far as shaping my, a lot of my thinking around Absolutely. inclusion and um, uh, finding a space and, and belonging because for so long I lived in a country where it was in the laws that people were excluded. And mm. so, yeah. Um, and I then moved to Australia, lived in Australia for a few years. And then my partner and I moved out to um, Utah. Um, it was a work transfer for him. And we sort of rolled our eyes and came kicking <laughs> and screaming. And would you believe it? We have extended our contract twice now. So have really enjoyed our time here. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, would you expand a little bit on the freedom revolution? Because I personally am not familiar with yeah. um, that revolution and kind of that movement. Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up in South Africa um, and South Africa, the South Africa that I grew up in as a kid was one that was had the overlay of apartheid, which was um, legally mandated separation of um, race. Okay. So you had, you know, the the there were 40 million people in the country. The country was essentially being run by five million of those people, and they were all white. Sure. And then we divided the races into we had. A number of ridiculous laws that divided the races into what in South Africa was called colored people, Indian people, um, Asian, and then black people. And then those races were mandated as to how they were allowed to engage in society mm. and if they were allowed to engage in society at all, and for most parts not. So it was, um, you know, I went to a whites-only high school. I experienced um, a lot of privilege by being a white person, um, of course, and then through the 80s, through a number of reasons, political sanctions, etc., um, the country recognised that change was inevitable and, mm. and that change was important, not just inevitable, I beg your pardon. And Nelson Mandela was released from jail in 1990. Um, I was a senior in high school at that time. And I remember watching it all on the television and being very excited that our country was moving into this, this yeah. new space. Um, I went to a very progressive um, high school, so you know we'd been thinking about what it would look like to have a country that underwent essentially what we then what then later became known as the Rainbow Revolution, because South Africa was known as the Rainbow Country because of all these different ethnicities and tribes and people, and um, and so we, um, as a young person entering university and experiencing um, the peaceful transfer of power it was it, it changes you like I, I think um it, ha it had to and it was important um for our country to not only make that change but also for us as south africans to recognize that we pulled off something which no other country in the world had ever done i mean there'd been plenty of revolutions but many of those had been incredibly violent and this was one where we wrote a constitution together. We probably, South Africans, South Africa now has probably the, the most liberal constitution in the world. Um, and we created a country where power was transferred. And I think it's come with problems. It's come with opportunities. There's been some excitement. But, you know, overlaying all of that was this 
experience as a, as a young person recognizing what does an inclusive space look like? What does, mm. what does, how do you move from a space that's, that, that has only one perspective and one, um, you know, I suppose one way of thinking to one that is more open to different ideas, different viewpoints, different um, people's different experiences. And I think that is, yeah, as I said earlier, profoundly shaped a lot of my own thinking and um, in what these sorts of spaces should look like or could look like or how we could drive that change. And the importance of, I think the lesson, that the other lesson that I learned just to finish off on that, but the other lesson that I learned was the importance of bringing as many different voices to the table and mm. being open to conversation and being open to difficult conversation and then moving through that, recognizing people's spaces and perspectives and going, okay, this is where we want to go to. How do we move you this way? How do we move you that way? What, what can, sure. yeah. Anyway. So I think that's a beautiful representation of obviously a peaceful revolution and mm. bringing all different ideas and people into one place and coming to um, a solution that benefits all, right? And so I guess my question is, how do you go about promoting diversity and inclusion to those who disagree or are uninterested in those conversations? Um, and what advice would you give? And I'm I'm kind of wanting your reflection on your experience as you witness the rainbow revolution and then also relate back to the work that you're doing now at our local Pride Center. Mm. You know... <sighs> I think my, my experience and my thinking around how do you bring people along is always leans into the idea that people recognize certain common themes. Okay. People recognize the idea of family. People recognize the idea of being ostracized. People, mm. Everybody has some version of that experience. And I think that for me, it's always been to try to connect somebody who is resisting, let's say going into a diversity workshop or going into, we're gonna do DNI training or whatever, trying to connect that with feelings that they may have experienced in high school phys ed class or whatever sure, it might be. Right. But but we've, we've got these ideas of, um, we, we've all had these kind of common experiences and yet sometimes when you say the word, well, we're going to do diversity or we're going to do inclusion inclusion training, people go, oh, well, that's just political correctness. That's just political correctness. No, 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 it's not that. It's about recognizing the common humanity that we have and the common experiences that we have and then going, you might not know all these things and let's help you be kinder. So I get, and this is just a quick aside, but I get so riled up when um, politicians or business leaders or, or anyone starts to talk about, it starts to use the phrase political correctness. This is just politically correct. Because to me, so for example, it's, you know, let's not call, I'll point it to myself, let's not, you know, I'm calling a, a gay guy, let's not, instead of calling him a fag, let's call him a gay guy, you know, and that, oh, that's just political correctness gone wild kind of thing. No, 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 it's not. It's just kindness. It's seeing somebody and mm. recognizing that the words you might be using or the things you might be doing are unkind and they're they're hurting somebody. You might not see it. You might not experience it. They might not say something, but it's just an unkind thing to do. And I think that we all, I hope that we were all brought up through our parents or our grandparents or our guardians in some sort of way that was like, just be kind to people. Yeah. So whenever I hear, oh, I don't, I don't 
believe in political correctness, my brain immediately substitutes that sentence, substitutes the word kindness into that sentence, and it's, I don't believe in kindness. And mm. you go, well, that's such a stupid thing to say. And yet when you couch it in, well, I don't believe in political correctness, people all nod their heads and go, yeah, 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 it's all gone wild. But to me, I still keep hearing, I, I'm not kind. I don't want to be kind. I don't want to acknowledge somebody else for who they are. Um, so, yeah, sorry. So, so to me, it, it does lean into that idea of finding the common human experience. And I'll finish off my, sorry, I keep saying I'll finish off my South African experience, but it is so blatantly obvious that I have been shaped by my upbringing. But um, one of the important leaders, and in fact, the person that I look to, to so much through, to so much um, in, in such a huge way, is Nelson Mandela, obviously, but Bishop Desmond Tutu. And Bishop Desmond Tutu was an Anglican Archbishop in Cape Town uh, through the 1980s. He won the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and he kind of popularized and, and brought to fore an African concept, um, which is Ubuntu. And Ubuntu, really, if you translate it, it means I am because you are. So I cannot be my full self if you are not allowed to be your full self. I'm, pre you know, I'm not able to be a full human being if I don't recognize that there is something in you which needs to be a full human being as well. Um, so, you know, I guess that is a very long way to answer the question of how do you bring people along? And to me, it's about recognizing that people want to do the right things inherently. They want mm. to be kind and they should be, and that there is benefit in that when people start to open their eyes or have the opportunity to ask the questions or have the opportunity to recognize um, and understand difference that they, they then are able to come, if you're looking at it, come along and, and be in diversity trainings or inclusion trainings or um, those sorts of spaces um, when they recognize that there is something that is going to benefit themselves. Absolutely. Their own growth. Sorry. Absolutely. No, no need to apologize. I think that is so beautiful. Um, and I love that you mentioned towards the end, um, there's benefits in being kind and there's benefits in including all diverse uh, people into your life, right? And into your circle. Um, can you speak to those benefits? Um, well, I... <laughs> I can, but it's going to be a horrible metaphor. It's the same as, well, I'm only going <laughs> to... I'm only ever going to drink, I don't know, um, one flavor of cool drink or one flavor of soda... Um, and if that is your decision, then that's a scary decision because you're prohibiting all the other flavors of soda from kind of bringing you joy when you're feeling down or feeling like a, you know, like a milkshake instead of a soda or whatever it is. So, you know, the benefits of, of bringing so many different ideas and perspectives into your world is that you have the opportunity to... Uh, hear different things, learn about different experiences, be engaged in talking about the fact that your experience is not the only one that's out there and, mm. and the fact that you then get to challenge as well. And if you're in a safe space, which we hope diversity and inclusion training spaces are, sure. you get the opportunity to ask the questions that you want to ask mm. without a, a fear of being um, attacked or vilified or um, etc. But you, you get the opportunity for your mind to grow into, hold on a second, is there something that I could 
lean into here, which is going to help my perspectives, which is going to help my thinking, which is going to help my business decision making, because it's knowledge that I either just assumed or didn't know or am just learning. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the LGBTQ plus community, as any rich culture, is always morphing and changing and growing and developing, um, which is why it can often be really difficult to learn or understand for people outside of that community. So what would be the first step for people to gain an understanding in what can be extreme an extremely foreign culture? I think the f the first step is to is to find the people in that um, culture or in those communities where you feel safe to ask the questions that you mm. want to ask because you are quite correct. It's um, <laughs> I mean I have been in this obviously I've been in this world all my life, but in <laughs> the more political part of this world for a, a shorter period of time, and I still feel as somebody who is in immersed in this world and space that there are things that I don't know or things that are changing or things that have changed from one year to the next, um, be it um, terminology, be it um, the thinking, be it discourse, etc. So to me, it has always been important to find somebody who I can ask the questions to that I want to ask. And I think that is why, sorry, to jump to a quick commercial break here, but the reason why a place like the Pride Center is important or um, Equality Utah or Encircle mm. or other organizations in your particular space, why they are important is because they should have, and most cases do have, individuals who can help with those questions that you have that you're cautious about. And they should be able to help you in such a way that it's, um, engages you to more thinking and more questions and, and, and more, um, you know, ideas of openness. Um, I remember when I was doing my research for um, um, some academic work that I was doing, I had a teacher who I was interviewing and they said to me, you know, Rob, we, we understand kids in our classes being gay, but when, and we kind of get kids in our classes being, well, um, transgender, we, we get that. But what we're not currently understanding as teachers is um, gender diverse young people whose mm. pronouns are not he or she, but are they or um, some variation of a non-binary pronoun. And it was a wonderful question to have because you could feel that this teacher wanted to do the right things, but just did not know what do I ask? What can I ask? How do I say this? And, you know, the, the, what was wonderful about it was that she was wanting to do the right thing for these young people in her care. Mm. And that um, she knew that there was a little bit of a landmine that she might tread on. Sure. But that she could also, you know, my, my advice to her was just sit with the young person and, and ask them. And isn't the most wonderful thing in the world, I mean, as just, you know, me jumping back into the philosophy sphere, isn't the most wonderful thing in the world feeling seen or feeling heard mm. or being seen and being heard. So the opportunity to, to, to bring somebody aside or to talk to somebody in a quiet spot or a colleague or a friend or young person in this case, um, you know, while it's scary, I don't think we should fear it as much as people do. actually do. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I agree I with feel. you. I agree. And I think, I think asking questions is such a beautiful way to demonstrate care yeah. and to demonstrate, like you said, being seen and hearing and, um, and so many things, but coming from say a very conservative standpoint, mm. um, 
asking questions questions can be so scary right and so what advice would you give um and what what would you speak to when it comes to quote unquote dumb questions um that people may feel their questions are dumb and they shouldn't ask them or do you have kind of a guideline of maybe a bullet point of questions that are great to start with or um anything to spark conversation that also promotes the same feeling of caring and hearing and seeing um that's a gr- that is a great question um i look it's going to be it's going to depend so much on the relationship you have with whoever you're wanting to ask these questions to but but i i, I believe that a, a strong way to start is the recognition of your lack of knowledge mm. and and for example to say i i want to know more about x or y your experience as a transgender person would it be okay for me to ask you some questions yeah because not only is there anxiety in asking the questions there is great fear and and i've experienced it and now you can talk to any lgbt individual mm. there is great fear in being asked those questions mm. and you have got to feel safe with the individual and you've also if you're asking the questions you've got to be okay with I'm not comfortable with this at the moment. Can I refer you to a friend? Can I help you? Can can we get back to this in a little while? Whatever. Because there is so much um internalized, I mean there's internalized fear, there's internalized homophobia or transphobia as as well. There's also that experience of well what happens next? Yeah. If this person asks me these questions, which I have been very quiet about or secret about or mm. what where are they what are they going to do with that knowledge so you know to assure some I'm sort of talking about on both sides and jumping around a bit but to assure the individual to whom you're asking the questions that it will be safe you might not get it right you're doing so with an open heart and an open um kind of willingness to want to know more and that it is and to give them the option to to stop or to to go you know I I that's we don't talk about that or I don't want to talk about that and that's okay um and recognize that as the person who um and you've also got to recognize that, that you've got to remember the fear that exists in so many LGBT um QIA individuals that is of being outed of being out of being um the, the uh, particularly in conservative spaces and businesses often a conservative space of well, w- what happens to my career next mm. what happens um my husband tells the story of um working with a colleague um uh in a co- the company here in the US and his colleague came to him and and asked him and about being out at work and um my husband said to him you know well this is you know an australian run company um there is no fear in being out at work you can come out at work you will not be you know any any discrimination you face will be dealt with in a very sure. very harsh light and this person's real crisis was that's fine i can come out here but what happens when i want to move on to the next place and they know that i'm out will I get the job how do you navigate moving into right. a new space as being an out person or whatever it was a very very um interesting and thoughtful kind of conversation that I know they had because for this person it was coming out and being authentically themselves and they wanted it but were worried about well what happens next I think that's really interesting and this is something I've thought about 
um, quite often is I am very clearly a woman of color <laughs> and that is not something yes. that I can hide yes. at all. Right. Yeah. And so regardless of if I am a woman of color at my current job or if I'm applying to another yeah. job as a woman, of, I'm a woman of color and everyone knows, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of different. Right. And what, where are we at as far as change in education goes along those lines? And what other challenges does the LGBTQ plus community face that I wouldn't face in that scenario, mm. right? Um, what are the fears? What are the challenges? And wh- what change in education do we still have to learn and to work on within the workplace? That's a huge, huge question. Yes. <laughs> We're trying to solve um, world problems here. It's, okay, I love it. I love it. Well, I love that you, I mean, even that as a question, if we had more directors and board members and managers asking just that question, that'd be great. I mean, to me, it was always interesting. Um, and I'm going to relate it back to some of my teaching experience again, because it's obviously the place that um, I spent the most time. But it was always important to recognize that, exactly as you say, there is visible difference, mm-hmm. and then there is invisible difference. Now, that might be invisible disabilities. It might be somebody, for example, um, being intersex. It might be somebody who's LGBT. Um, so the recognizing that in any space you're in, you do not know the full life experience of the people that are sitting there. And Mm. to just simply assume that the white guy walking in is the same as my white guy experience or that the person of colour walking in has got the same life experience as the other person of colour sitting there is a ridiculous concept. Yeah. And I wish we would approach teams and workspaces with the view that there is difference among us some might be visible, a lot is invisible, because when we yeah. start to talk about the intersectional differences, that's the concept. If you're talking about a concept that's freaking people out at the moment, it's intersectionality, is the idea that the experience of, uh, <laughs> that, that there is no such thing as this homogeneous experience. So there are experiences that a person of color who is queer with an invisible disability is going to have a completely different set of perspectives, ideas, requirements, challenges, um, thinking than a person of color who is not queer and does not have a disability or you get the point, sorry. So I wonder if it isn't something along the lines of walking into a room and knowing that we are all different, no matter what we look like, and then starting to think around the fact of how do we how do we as business people or mm. um, schools or governmental organizations embrace that difference and recognize it and benefit from it? Because there are so many different perspectives and ideas out there. Um, one of the, the great, and I, I apologize if you've heard this on your podcast, but one that I, uh, just a metaphor that I, I love so much and the amazing Emma Houston uses it at the Salt Lake County. So I, going to give her credit is where I heard it. But she talks about the difference between diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And she she likens it to going to a dance. And she says, diversity is getting an invitation. So you got the invitation to the dance. So you're a person of color, you're a queer person, you're a person with a disability, you get the invitation, you get to the dance and you stand around and you go, well, now what? Inclusion is recognizing that some people have got a little bit more of an advantage. So you you get given a pair of really nice dancing shoes. So that's inclusion. So now you can get on the dance floor. 
And that's great. But belonging is what we should be striving for. And she says belonging is when you get to choose the music. She says that's when you're really looking at an organization or a a space that is allowing people to choose the music, to help set the agenda, to help drive the agenda. So, and not in a, well, I'm only going to play this music. You just get the opportunity to play some other music every now and then. Or in helping people to enjoy a particular part of the body. I don't know. I just have always loved that as just a way of thinking around these different quite sometimes quite tricky concepts but they're not they're just about allowing people to come in and have a be at the dance or the other metaphor is often be at the table and you know yeah. that sort of stuff. so yeah I love that metaphor and I think that paints the picture very clearly and in a way I personally have not heard before so yeah. thank oh, you good. for sharing okay. well please That's- thank Miss Emma <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love it I yeah. love it and I think it's really important to understand that uniqueness and belonging in the workplace are very important and without the two working hand in hand together we aren't we aren't there yet right yeah. and so it's there's a difference in someone feeling completely unique and zero belonging yeah. in their workplace right they still cannot be their authentic yeah. self and then also someone having complete belonging because they're not being their unique self whatsoever yeah. is also taken away from their authenticity yeah. right and so we have to find that middle ground yeah and so if if it were you if you were on the board of a massive company yeah. worldwide um and you were building out the strategies and the programs for diversity and inclusion in the workplace what would your foundation be where would you start i think i would start by developing an understanding of within the current leaders and organization uh, organizational managers or whatever of why this is important mm-hmm. i think just launching into hey we're going to bring in a a variety of different diverse people I don't necessarily think that often is successful because there's this anxiety and fear that comes with it I think that there has to be the initial work of why is this going to benefit our company Mm. and it benefits your company in a number of ways it benefits school spaces in a number of ways so again to I mean I haven't got the latest um uh, company stats, but I can tell you that you know some of the things that we know from school research is that if young people, young queer kids, are allowed to come to these spaces and be seen, it improves academic achievement, mm-hmm. and this is quantifiable. It improves um, uh, it, it lowers truancy, so it improves attendance. It improves mental health. But the simple idea that there is a space, like it could be an employee in a resource group, an LGBT resource group, or in the research that I'm citing, um, a school GSA, Gay Straight Alliance. If there is just the Gay Straight Alliance, we're finding decreased rates of suicidality, we're finding decreased rates of mental health, uh, depression and anxiety in school, absenteeism by those kids who who might identify as LGBT, they don't even have to go to the GSA. They don't have to be a part of it. But just the simple fact of knowing that their organization or their body, or in this case, their schools, spends time, resources, and money on a GSA club or a a LGBT ERG group Mm. means that people feel, begin to feel that sense of belonging. So along with the the managerial drive to allow people or to to 
take the time to explain why this is important. And there is both um, the moral imperative of why inclusion is important, as mm. well as the actual financial imperative of why inclusion is important, as well as the legislative imper- imperative of, you know, we should be doing this. Those are all great reasons to start to get involved in this work. The second part is the manager, management and the directorship have to take the actions that show that this is not just lip service, mm. that they have to either spend money, they have to spend time when they are standing up in speeches or writing annual reports or whatever it might be on their web pages. They have to articulate that. And that is that is really, really important. Um, there are a number of stories that come through the Pride Center, but um, you know some of the ones that I always find so incredibly touching are the ones that you're never ever going to know about. So oh. there's a there's a project here in Utah called Project. There's a uh, not-for-profit here called Project Rainbow, and what Project Rainbow does is that they distribute rainbow flags for the week of Pride, the Pride Week here in Utah. And they started out in two years ago and they distributed 700 flags. This year they did 3,000. And the wonderful thing is that they go and they put them up in front of somebody's house, they stay there for a week and then they go and collect them again. And the stories that come from that are incredibly, incredibly touching because it is somebody's we have a number of letters and emails and secret little post-it notes shoved under neighbors' doors saying, I live in this neighborhood. I cannot come out. I am transgender. I am a lesbian who lives here. I can't tell my parents, but just knowing that there is somebody on my street makes me feel better. So those little symbols of support, using um, uh, putting a little rainbow flag on your... um, on your computer or your binder or saying to your colleagues i'm attending pride this year that is you know and those sorts of things you don't know that they make a difference but there is somebody there listening and somebody who begins to see you as an ally and somebody who might then come to you and and tell you their experience so it is while they are not the be all and end all those small tokens of inclusion and inclusive practice you know and be it a put a i don't know black lives matter t-shirt on or post your post a picture of yourself at a a black lives matter protest or at a a a pride event or whatever that might be those things we are finding those stories in the pride center have meant so much to people Mm. because it's the first time they feel safe in, in some of those spaces, they know that they've got an ally somewhere there. And uh, yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. I got a little emotional because um, I think that is such an important piece is to know that you are safe here. Right. Yeah. And personally, as I've driven through neighborhoods and seen Black Lives Matter yeah. flags, and I have felt seen and heard by yeah. strangers and accepted by strangers and supported and safe. Yeah. And, um, that is such a huge part of our world shifting to be inclusive and accepting and safe for everyone, right? So how do we go about building environments that support the voices of our LGBTQ plus community um, to enable them to lead change? I think it boils down to, so much of it boils down to the will to want to do that. Mm. That you, as leadership, you have to want that 
to happen. And once you've done that, you find that coalition of individuals who are um, who are respected, who are empowered, who have, are given the resources within that environment or that space in order to help drive that change. And to then recognize, to go back to the beginning of this whole discussion, to recognize that there are going to be some people who are going to come to the change kicking and screaming. And what do you do for those individuals? Yeah. And how do you create a space which, again, is safe for them to ask the questions that they want to ask, that is recognizing that they're going to come to some of these spaces having a lot of preconceived notions or expectations or um programming I, I guess and you've got to break some of that down in a way that enables them to feel seen and heard as well but also to for them to to connect the humanity that we spoke about at the beginning of this podcast with the different individuals or the different groups that you're you're talking to um and that some of that change is hard and, and that is okay Um, But that for companies or spaces, there is benefit. And again, I go back to the fact that there is not a a, 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 peer-reviewed academic research shows the benefit to businesses, the benefit to schools, the benefit to government organizations of being a space where people can come and not be on high alert, not be panicking about what their colleagues are going to say or think or or do what their career advancement might look like. People come to work then and give their best. And that is what we want. And that that benefit translates across the board. It builds better relationships. It builds better bottom line, you know. So um, recognizing that this work is both important, um, but sometimes pretty hard. And some people might not get it some people take a while to get there but um i go back to kindness and i go back to let's talk you know let's sit down yeah. and 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 work out what where does that anxiety come from what's the, yeah. what's the deal where's that and fear come from yeah, yeah and let's work together to get there yeah. um because the work is important like you said like there there are benefits across the board that come yeah. from giving people the space and the room and the freedom to be absolutely 100% 100% who they are yeah right and so I think that's a really really important piece yeah for someone potentially questioning their sexual or personal identity what advice would you give to this person particularly when um, in a culture that doesn't necessarily always welcome the idea of being gay I think um, there are two things it's going to Boil down to making sure that the individual or the person who um, is questioning or thinking about or knows their identity, um, they need to ensure that they stay safe. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean a number of different ways. You know, the safe in their in their um, physical safety as well as their mental safety and their mental health. Um, that, of course, is going to clash up against the idea that the longer they stay in the closet, quote unquote, the the more it's gonna affect their mental health and how, what sort of strategies do they have of um, making sure that they are looking after that, particularly that mental health side um, and particularly with the increase of suicide and depression and anxiety that comes with being in the closet for so long. Now, 
Um, today's world is so much different to the world that I grew up in around and when I was thinking about some of these questions. But for example, there are so many incredible support groups um, that are online and available. Um, and I think that that is the first opportunity that people have to um, slowly start to dip their toes into some of these spaces that they want to be in but might not know exactly how it works, etc. So going to events and things like the Pride Festival or um, a festival or an event that supports an LGBTQ artist, etc. Mm. is for many people the first step into their identity, their sexual, uh, sexual identity or perhaps their gender identity. Um, so look for those safe spaces that you might go and see and look around and, and, and find out a little bit more. Identify those individuals that you're going to be safe talking to, be it online or in person. Um, and then as you're, as you're coming out, I guess that this experience is so incredibly different for, for everyone. Coming out is not a one-time thing. <laughs> um, it, Recognize that you are going to be constantly coming out and it is exhausting, um, but it is important um, and it gets easier. Um, so, but just be ready for that one. I don't think I was ready for that. Um, you know, I thought it was going to be this one time big announcement. There'd be fireworks and all sorts of things. It wasn't. Um, however, it was wonderful in that there was really, a, a, stereotypically felt like a weight was lifted. But you're going to keep coming out and you've got to come out to friends, you're going to come out to family, you're going to come out and work, um, you're going to be in conversations where somebody says, oh, so tell me, what did, do you and your wife have kids? And you're going to go, mm, no, it's my husband. And no, we don't. We have two dogs. Um, and that is as it feels as exhausting sometimes the 500th time as it did the first time. Um, but I, I really go back to the importance of looking after yourself and and, um, and making sure that you find those people where you're going that you're going to be safe around and that I think is is linked to that constant sense of fear that so many LGBTQ people have because you never know how people are going to react I, I think you know we all might have that one person or that parent or guardian or grandparent or whatever that you think is going to be okay but until you actually say those words you don't actually know how they're going to react so there is always that fear but um you know i think again i inherently believe that people want you to be happy and find the people who want you to be happy and those are the people that you can come out to absolutely what would you say to the young person or or the older person um, who is still holding their breath and still holding this fear and anxiety over their head, um, who may be kind of at their end, the end of their rope and deciding, um, do I come out or do I just continue down this road um, wherever it may take me? What would you say to them? That is such an incredibly difficult question question simply because being at the end of your rope is is a horrible horrible place to be and having to make that choice um, depends so much on how they feel their next step or they whatever the next step is going to be for them um, I would say my my gut immediate gut reaction is of course to say to individuals that um, 
you know, it's it's going to get better and you will be fine and there will be a weight lifted and um, you will find your family out there and your, and your family might be your logical family instead of your biological family. And all of those things are true, but there are for some individuals, they have very different experiences coming out. And, and that is terrifying to me that individuals come out and are ostracized and marginalized from family and friends and colleagues. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I, as much as I can say, yes, it's going to get better, you, for some it doesn't. And that is a terrible realization. But for those people where it doesn't, there are places, again, that, that can help, that can connect you. There are places, there should be places in your workspace, um, which is why we hope that work... Um, offers um, the opportunity for individuals to, to, to seek help and, and, and be, get connected. Um, for those individuals that, that choose not to come out, again, that's a, a choice you're going to make and it's, it's a, as valid a choice as coming out. Mm. Um, it's one that, that we hope, we know is, is fraught with some sense of danger um, around mental health. So make sure that if you've chosen to stay in the closet for a while or you've chosen to stay in the closet full stop, that you have the, the mental health space um, and the, that you create the mental health space that allows you to continue with that choice. I mean, and, and that is also fine. Um, but, you know, we hope that whatever the choices are that you make, you, you're able to do so in a way that keeps you safe, keeps you alive, keeps you... Um, connected to those that you love so yeah. yeah I think that's amazing so what resources do people new to this community specifically what resources do they have that they do not know about um, and then also outside of the community what are some general resources that mm. people can go to for support or information or for um, community <laughs> um, there, so there's a I, I think that in this day and age, it is quite incredible the breadth and scale of resources that are available um, around so many different topics that I think, you know, I think back to those days when I would sneak into a bookstore, into a library and try and find the section which spoke about homosexuality <laughs> and then right. run past it and grab a few books so that nobody saw me in that section. I don't have to do that anymore. Um, I think that the resources, some important resources, I would say for young um, individuals and for teachers would be um, the GLSEN resource, G-L-S-E-N, which is the Gay and Lesbian Educators Network, I believe. They have got every piece of incredible um, academic research and, and, and articles and ideas for school spaces, I guess also for parents of queer kids. That, that is a really, really important resource. Um, the, the other big organizations such as GLAAD does amazing work. I think if you're a parent, to reach out to organizations like PFLAG, um, they're out there to help you parent a young person. Um, and then, of course, the number of uh, different organizations around that might help with information about being intersex or transgender or gender non-conforming are out there on the internet. Um, sometimes the internet is not a safe space so please be careful on the internet um, which is something for everyone but um, it is also sometimes not a safe space where we're learning um, that so many people in their own homes can't access the internet and can't access that information for a number of reasons Um, and then spaces like the pride center the public library um, the the organizations around you 
you can write to to get information become more important to get that physical information that you can then get sent to you so um, you know look for those they, they are around and they're in different towns and um, there are a number of books and things that you can get and articles and those sorts of spaces that that might be more sensible and, and safer for you um, as far as uh, for individuals who aren't members of the LGBT community or aren't um, um, questioning their membership of the <laughs> LGBTQ community you don't get a membership card but you get the point um, uh, one of the things that I would say is um, to not only be open to going to different events that might be LGBTQ focused like a pride event etc but also to strive to find out more about those topics that you feel that you want to know a little bit more about so um, take part in diversity inclusion and belonging training um, ask your your colleagues or your friends why why aren't we doing this how can we bring this to the center or to our space or so um, you know educate yourselves it is it is something which I'm constantly doing and striving to do, but there are some really good kind of 101 websites or courses or whatever out there. So, you know, find out why pronouns are such a big, important issue for some people. Find out what, what it means to be transgender. Or find out uh, last week we, sent, we, we celebrated Intersex Awareness Day. So find out what that means and, and the fact that um, you know, you probably know somebody who is and um, is intersex. I mean, if you know um, somebody who's a redhead, I'm talking about the sort of very distinct redheads, um, they have the same incidence in a population group as somebody who's intersex. So, you know, chances are you know somebody who's intersex. Find out what that means and how what, what is their experience and how yeah. how is their experience shaped some of their decisions or, or opportunities. So education is always my number one thing. I think as a teacher of old, that's always number one. It has to be. And and that information is now out there and free. And accessible. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Thank you for all of those resources and Sorry. tips and tricks. No, that's yeah. perfect. That's no. perfect. Um, Rob, thank you for being here with us today and um, sharing so much of your wisdom and your knowledge and your experience. And uh, I'd like to close and wrap things up with a little quote by Bishop Desmond Tutu. Um, My humanity is bound up in yours for we can only be human together. That's so thank you for being human with me today. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it being him. The first thing you should do is put a little rainbow something somewhere. Like it's such a small gesture, but like it instantly tells someone like, oh, okay. Like they're at least trying, you know, like I can hold them accountable if they're still making mistakes. Um, and then start showing up at pride and start finding like places in the community where you can get involved um you know like your company should have a contingent in the pride parade and a booth at the festival um because it gives your lgbtq employees an opportunity to go out and represent your company in this huge community that otherwise wouldn't know if they can even support you as a company. So, you know, it's good for your company, it's good for your employees, and it makes your employees feel proud of your company. Our website is 
projectrainbowutah.org and you can go on and sign up to volunteer to stake flags or you can just sign up for your own flag. It's $15 to have a flag in your yard. We stake almost anywhere in Utah um, and the proceeds will go to a local LGBTQ organization or a local LGBTQ cause or project and yeah. Exactly one year later, June 28, 1970, after the Stonewall Riots, the first gay pride marches were held in New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. In planning the first parade, activist L. Craig Schoonmaker suggested the word pride rather than gay power, which had been shouted and had become somewhat of a moniker to the LGBTQ community. He explained, There's very little chance for people in the world to have power. People did not have power then. Even now, we only have some. But anyone can have pride in themselves, and that would make them happier as people and produce the movement likely to produce change. RevRoad is a unique blend of accelerator agency and venture capital. They work with businesses at any stage of growth to help them scale their efforts. RevRoad provides value to its portfolio companies by giving them an in-house professional team, services, and networking opportunities. You can learn more at RevRoad.com. This podcast is proudly brought to you by LaunchPod Media Podcast Agency and Production House.